This message today has two points, contentment and singleness. Contentment and singleness. So the first part of the message on contentment is this first paragraph, verses 17 through 24, verse 17 through 24. It's helpful to remember where we are in Corinthians, where we are in this whole context and where we are in this time in the world, as we've discussed last week and the weeks before that. Paul has written this letter to the Corinthian Christians as a response to their letter to him, asking for instruction on a variety of topics and issues. This letter arrives at a certain place in a certain time with unique circumstances, which are referenced again in today's text, in today's passage, similar to last week's, where there is a a particular situation that is happening, and he references it, though doesn't give us all the details. That leads us to some challenges, to figure out what exactly he's talking about, because some things in the passage don't make sense. So bear that in mind as we embark on this message. Our first point concerning contentment, you need to recognize and remember that we are often tempted to live our lives desiring things that we do not have. We're often tempted to live our lives desiring things that we do not have. This has managed to make it into the Ten Commandments, the word that I pronounce in a different way than some 80% of you pronounce. It is the word covetous or covetous. The Bible tells us not to covet. What does it mean to covet? What's well, to desire things very strongly that are not yours to have. It's not appropriate for you to be strongly, passionately desiring those things that God has not given to you. So what is the opposite of coveting? Well, it's contentment. So we can bring things full circle. Contentment. Now, this applied to our text today. We're not going to focus on it necessarily in the first point, but it'll tie in in the second point. But related to singleness, oftentimes when you are single, you spend your energy longing to be married. You spend your spare time wishing to be married. You spend a lot of time, energy, and money trying to find that special someone. But then what happens? If you get married, then... You spend your time longing to have children. And you spend your time and energy and money and resources longing for that, preparing to have children. And then, after you have children, you long for them to stop crying all night long. Or you long for them to be potty trained and not go through hundreds of diapers per month. And you wish, if only this child could do the things that it cannot do for himself, such as sitting, standing, eating, walking, talking, communicating. Could could you just tell me what's wrong so we could help you? Well, no, the child cannot talk. So what are you doing? You, as a parent, are discontent with this situation or this child. You wish that this child was a little bit better than it is, a little more well-behaved or less fussy or more happy or sleeping better. And then those things happen, and then the the child grows and develops and is able to sit or stand or walk or eat or use the bathroom by himself or get dressed or um, take himself to school or 
get a driver's license or have a job or go to college or move out of the house. And then suddenly, where are you back again? Y'all, you miss your kids. Empty house. Hey, why don't you come visit? Man, I, I miss my kids. So then you are then discontent again. Hey, why don't you get married and have some grandkids? So then you're longing for things that you do not have. And it is like this in every situation. You could apply this to any circumstance in life. There is this temptation to discontentment. It happens in the workplace. It happens in your job. It happens in your school. It happens everywhere. Now, unique to our passage today, not just in relationships, but in the Christian life, the new, the new believer, the new Christian, the person who just converts out of Corinthian paganism, they face a great temptation towards discontentment, to turn their whole life upside down because they want to be, well, less Corinthian. They want to be more like the Apostle Paul, or Apollos, or Peter, or Jesus, or the super apostles. Now, there is a degree to which that is good, but there is an element of that that Paul is correcting them about, and that is what we find here in our first paragraph. You see a a, a term repeated, and I'll ask you, I'm about to read it, but then I'm going to ask you, what word did we see repeated a whole bunch of times? So, listen carefully or look in your Bibles, chapter 7, verse 17 through 24. I'm going to read this, and then I will ask you and and look for a raised hand to tell me what word was repeated a whole lot in this section. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not be uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandment of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in the state in which he was called. Andrew, what's the word? (laughs) All right. That's one option. Is there a second? Yes. Call. There we go. I was afraid someone was going to say circumcised. Um, So the word called appears, I think, nine times in in, in these couple of verses. It's the last word of that section, and it's in the first verse. It's, I think it's in each verse. Called, 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 called. All right, so what is he talking about? Well, there is the effectual calling. There is a general call, and then there is the effectual call. The general call is a general call, sort of like a preacher standing up and saying to everyone, or to everyone possible, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That's a general call. The effectual call is when that general call that you hear actually touches your heart and actually compels you to believe. 
So that effectual call is an effective call. It, it calls you in such a way that you hear it. it, calls you in such a way that it impacts you and causes you to come to Christ, to believe. Think of, man, my illustrations are so like defaulting to the countryside. Um, so when I was a child, uh, we would go to my grandparents' house on Sundays after church, and we would have Sunday dinner or as some call it, lunch. But Sunday dinner, after the morning worship service, and Granny would tell us, my grandmother would tell us, uh, to go outside and play while they finish setting up. So we're not like in the house causing a ruckus. So we would go out into my grandparents' um, property. For those who have been there, it's the place you've seen. Um, So we're out like running around down by the lake and trying not to get eaten by alligators and looking for snakes and all the things. So then what does granny do when it's lunchtime, when it's time to eat? Well, she calls us. How does she call us? Well, she walks out to the end of the house and there is this, this bell. It's a really big bell and she rings the bell a couple times and we hear it. Now, that bell is fairly loud. She, yes, she has acreage, she has land, and so uh, it's not widely heard, but that bell can be heard across other people's property as well. That call can be heard in a general way by all the neighbors, but that call is effectual for her grandchildren. So we hear that call, we know what it means, and we come running because we were recipients of that call to come eat lunch. So that is the difference between a general call and effectual call. The effectual call is actually effective and it it impacts you. It causes you to come. You come running, willingly. You desire to come. Why? Because you know what that means. You want to eat lunch and you love your grandmother's cooking. So what is happening in this paragraph here? I'd love to do just a sermon on my grandmother's cooking, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. Um, When the Lord calls us to himself... When he saves us, he calls us to himself, and we are in various circumstances. We're in various places, literally. I was saved in Central Florida. Some of you were saved here in New York, and others are saved in other places. The Corinthians, most of them are likely saved in Corinth. And what is the temptation when they are saved? Well, Corinth is a bad place. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to go move to Jerusalem. I'm going to move to Athens. Uh, Not Athens. I'm going to move to Antioch. I'm going to go to a more Christian place because Corinth is heathen, worldly. That's the temptation. Beyond physical place, which I do believe physical place is referenced here, But beyond that, there is the circumstances of your life. So let's say your employment. You get saved, and now you want to tell all your friends about Jesus. So you do. And then they get saved. And then you say, you know what? I don't want to work this job anymore because it's boring. Going to the office every day. And I'm working for some boss who's not a Christian. I really want to be in the ministry. Maybe I could become a pastor. That would be better than doing what I'm doing right now. This is a boring job. It's heathen. It's not Christian. These are secular spreadsheets that have nothing to do with Jesus. They're just documents. 
And so you start developing this discontentment because you're working for a non-Christian employer doing non-Christian things. They're not anti-Christian. They're just, they're just things. And so there's this temptation to become discontent. Or in the situation described here, the Jew-Gentile distinction. You're a Gentile and you see all of these apostles from Jesus, who many of which are Jewish, and you become jealous and you think, oh, well, maybe they have an advantage over me and I want that. Well, Paul's emphasis in this paragraph is on this, this circumstances in which people are called. The situation in life in which people are called to salvation. The Christian's primary calling after his effectual calling is not to lead a revolution, not to turn the world upside down, not to go in and smash the desks in his office and say, this is now a Christian workplace. No, that's not the calling. But rather to be faithful in whatever condition he is in. We already addressed the location, but imagine that you're living in Corinth and you get saved and you start hearing or thinking that this is no place to raise a family. This is no place to raise a Christian family. You see on top of that hill over there, that big mountain is the temple to the city gods and it's served by literally a thousand prostitutes. It's a port city filled with every evil vice known to man. Have you ever heard a sailor curse? Let's get out of here. Let's move to the country. Now, the specific things addressed here in this paragraph where Paul is calling them to contentment is contentment whether Jew or Gentile and content whether slave or free. Now, this Jew or Gentile situation in verses 17 and following Verse 18 says, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Why? Well, verse 19, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. In other words, obedience to God is what we care about. This practice does not matter. Now, for the astute listener, they would say, wait a second, I thought this was a commandment of God. It's in the Old Testament. Well, for those members who were here for the members meeting, you heard me referencing transitions and and shifts between Old Covenant and and New Covenant, and this is one of them. A shift has taken place in the understanding of the law and what we're supposed to obey, what we're supposed to worry about, what we're supposed to concern ourselves with. And circumcision is one of these rituals that is done away with. We don't need to do it. If you're already circumcised, then fine, don't worry about it. But if you're not, then don't go get it. Why? You don't need to. It has no spiritual advantage to you. That's the only reason we can imagine for possibly doing this is because it's going to somehow help you because, well, the Jews were told to do it and they're God's chosen people. So if I want to be like them, then I need to do that too. But God's inspired word says, no, no. This circumcision has this unique angle to it that this is a neutral, 
unchangeable circumstance. What's done is done. You can't undo it. There's no advantage one way or the other. And so God's calling in those neutral, permanent circumstances is to contentment. Absolute contentment. Not resentment, not frustration, but peace. Content, whether you are a Jew or Gentile. Content, whether you have light skin or dark skin. Content, whether you are male or female. Content, whether you are tall or short. There are neutral things that have no spiritual advantage one way or the other, and God calls you to complete and total contentment. The second example is this slavery issue, slave or free. Verse 21 says, were you called while a slave? Don't be concerned about it. Don't worry about it. But if you can be made free, take advantage of it. Rather, use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, if he's called while free, is Christ's slave. So he's saying, if you are a slave when you are converted, when you are saved, and you have the opportunity to go free, then yes, of course you should take advantage of it. This is why we've got point two. Seek freedom from bad, changeable circumstances when you can, but nevertheless remain content. So these bad situations, he's he's not sugarcoating this. Slavery is a bad situation. It is not a desirable thing. So if you can get out of it, then yes, get out of it by all means. But if you're stuck, if you're in this situation where there's nothing you can do about it, then yes, you should be content. Well, why? Because there's a spiritual layer over top of it that's more important, and that is that if you are in literal bondage, you're in prison. Literal prison. You can't get out. You are not free, literally, but you are free in Christ. And if you are free, literally, you're running around this earth without chains, without bondage, without slavery, without anything holding you down, but you are in your sin, you are still a slave to your sin and you are not free in Christ. And so that is actually a worse condition than the one who is in prison or behind bars or is in chains or is a rower. You remember the the under rower situation, those people who are chained to the oars in their boats. That's really bad. But if you're in Christ and you're in that situation, you can't get out, you're actually more free than the captain of the ship. But of course, if you can get out, then get out. So what Paul is not doing here is he is not being pietistic in this. He's not saying, hey, those physical desires that you have, such as not doing backbreaking labor absolutely every day of your life until you drop dead. He's not saying, hey, that's stupid and you need to just ignore the pain. He's saying, if you can get out, yes, get out. But if not, hey, you're free in Christ. If you can gain your freedom, take advantage of it. If you cannot, though, don't worry about it. Don't obsess over that. Don't focus on that day in and day out. Every single day you wake up and you're like, oh, another day. And you're like carving into the wall of your prison cell, like notching the days. Okay, you can do that, but just to track time. But don't do that to, to compel your discontentment. 
If you cannot be free, do not worry about it because freedom in Christ makes you free even if you are not physically free. So what do we learn from these two examples? That of the ethnic situation, Jew versus Gentile, and that of this employment status. There are two conditions that help you determine whether or not you should be absolutely content or content with your eyes open. And I believe these two conditions are, number one, permanency, and number two, adiaphora. So they are permanent. Are they permanent? And then are they adiaphora? So permanent is obviously something that is forever versus not forever. So can you get out versus can you not? Are you stuck with this? Is this your skin color, your height, your national origin? You can't change that. Or... Is it something that is changeable, such as your employment status? And then secondly, is this a matter of adiaphora? If you remember, or if you have been here for some time, you should remember the word adiaphora, but if you're not, we will spell it again. A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. P-H-O-R-A. A-D-I-A-P-H-O-R-A. Adiaphora means things that are indifferent, things that are neutral, things that don't matter. You could take it or leave it. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. There's no spiritual advantage or disadvantage to saying yes or to saying no, or to having the thing or not having the thing. And that's how you shape your decision-making. So if you're stuck with something forever, but that thing doesn't matter, be content with it. If you're not stuck with something forever and it's not desirable and you can get out of that situation, then it's okay to get out of that situation. This issue of circumcision is a matter of no spiritual advantage. Jews have it, Gentiles don't. don't. But neither gives you an advantage before God. Beyond this ethnic or national origin thing, there are physical characteristics such as height, Some people are short, some people are tall, and it really bothers some people whether they are too tall or too short. They have a certain type of hair, they don't like it, or a certain skin color or shade, they don't like it, or a certain eye color, you know, they just, oh, I wish I had blue eyes and I had brown eyes and I can't stand it. In our world today, and as we commemorate this month, gender It is of no spiritual advantage to be male or female, believe it or not. Yes, there are differences between being male and female, quite a few differences, but it is not a matter of being better or worse. Our world today is full of messaging telling young people that it is bad to be a man or that it is bad to be a woman. And this is fueled by an idea that we would call intersectionality which draws from a cultural Marxist framework, which seeks to define everything in in society in terms of an oppressor-oppressed paradigm. It sees every relationship in terms of a power dynamic. In this system, the ultimate oppressor is a straight, white, conservative Christian man. And the ultimate oppressed person is a queer, black, progressive, non-Christian female. So think of like, a black lesbian witch. That's the ultimate oppressed victim. The conservative white Christian man, or you hear terms like wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, 
All of those things, all those terms are used to attack the evil person that is on one end of the intersectionality chart in order to establish someone at the other end of the intersectionality chart as oppressed. But what happens with all of this is that there is an implicit or explicit righteousness attached to that chart. This narrative of oppression is the dominant religion in every leading place of influence in our culture today. Oh, by the way, the only thing that would make the queer, black, progressive, non-Christian female more oppressed was if that black lesbian witch was trans. That makes that person more oppressed, more special on the intersectionality chart. Now, this narrative of oppression is the dominant religion in every leading place of influence in our culture today. This includes the media. Think the news, social media, fact checkers, big tech. This is also true in culture, arts, entertainment. Think of movies, commercials. We've seen some of that in commercials. Sports, celebrities, as well as the world's liturgical calendar this month of worship of these gods. Business also is in on this. Wall Street, big banks, all of these major sectors of industry, education, Education is one of the driving forces for this. You've heard of teachers' unions. They promote all sorts of these things. And not to be outdone is religion. Just overt religion. Churches. All of these categories and industries have been overtaken by this woke, woke cult, which is this combination of the world's most murderous philosophies all rolled into one and neatly packaged into a DEI, ESG, or SEL program. That's what all that stuff's about. So when the news comes out that Chick-fil-A hired a, a vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion, that's what this is about. That's the topic, that's the religion, that's the category that that label falls under. The irony is that apart from Satan's authorship of these woke philosophies, these philosophies actually come as a product of white European males. So where did you get this wokeness from? You got it from white European males such as Hegel, Marx, Rousseau, Heidegger, Foucault, Gramsci, and others. There's deep irony there. If you don't get it, you can look at my notes later and I can talk you through it more slowly. So this woke cult has taken over everything and it says that to be a straight male or even a straight female is bad and it makes you evil unless you denounce or divest yourself of your privilege. And the most powerful way, like the, the peak, um, you know, wild draw four Uno card that you can throw down just to win, the peak thing you can do is to change your gender expression, to change from being a boy to a girl or from a girl to a boy. So this will change you in the most powerful, ultimate way from being the most evil oppressor on the planet to being the most virtuous, oppressed person on the planet, and then you will have attained the greatest righteousness possible. So these ideas are implicitly, they're implied, and then sometimes they're explicitly spread around social media on platforms such as TikTok. And they're targeted towards children, particularly children who have not yet hit puberty. So my friend, James Lindsay, calls this grooming. So on this day, this first Sunday of June, June 4th, 
I would like you to hear me loud and clear. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God did not make a mistake when he made you, male or female, according to that binary. You have two options. And actually, you don't even have those options. God has those options. And what he has created, he has created. If you are hearing messages that are telling you that you were born in the wrong body, you must speak truth to those lies. Whether those lies are coming from outside of you or coming from within you. Don't trust everything that you think or feel. Rather, you need to shape all of your thoughts and feelings and actions by the word of God. The word of God, his objective revelation. And by the way, general revelation is also revelation of God. And so you take the special revelation of the word of God, this Bible, and then you look at general revelation, such as God's creation, and you see, oh, I am a boy. You see that in general revelation. You see what you are. That's called general revelation. You see reality. And then you look in God's word and you see what that means. And that is objective truth. If you are born male, you are a man. And that is not to be attempted to be changed. If you're born female, you're a woman, and you should not attempt to change that either. And it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel or what other people think or feel or say or do. This is objective truth. This objective revelation is visible in the light of nature, and it is clarified for us in the Bible. If you are tempted to give in to the message that you were born in the wrong body, I want you to know that there is hope for you. There is healing available for you. This is what we call gender dysphoria. It is not a permanent condition. It is something that comes and goes, and it's honestly a very modern phenomenon. Whether this is due to all of the external messaging coming from all sorts of places in media, or whether it is coming internally because of all sorts of messed up hormones and things that are in our food and water and everything around us. I don't know exactly what it is for each individual person. But there is hope for you. There is healing available for you and there is peace offered to you that does not involve undergoing surgery or harming your body. That peace which you so desperately need and long for is first and foremost peace with God. You need to be reconciled to God. Each person needs to be reconciled to God. Whether you have this problem that you're struggling with internally and nobody knows about it, or whether you're struggling with normal ups and downs of life, you need to be reconciled to God. So you need this peace with God. But secondly, then you need internal peace. You need peace with yourself because we by nature don't usually have that. We're at war within ourselves. The Bible says this is fighting within and without, internal fighting and external fighting. And you need that. You need, you need, sorry, you need peace both internally and externally. You need this internal peace 
And this comes as the pure water of the word of God is gently poured out of the fountain of life. It flows into your soul and brings hope and healing. As the pure water of the word of God is gently poured out of the fountain of life, it flows into your soul and brings hope and healing. It replaces the war with peace. And that water puts out the fire which burns away at your soul and body. There is hope for you who struggle with gender dysphoria. If you are a Christian and you find this month of June, particularly here in New York City, extremely disturbing, first, I'm glad that you have a conscience that is not entirely seared rock hard. But I would encourage you to look on these neighbors of ours with compassion and prayer for their salvation. Remember these words from our previous chapter, which we have considered. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. That's what we call the law. It shows us our guilt and shows us our sin and our hopelessness and that we are, we are screwed up and we need a savior. But... Verse 11 goes on, such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Those who experience gender dysphoria especially need prayer and compassion. Gender dysphoria is the sense that your body and your mind's gender do not align, that you were born in the wrong body and need to switch genders. These and all people need the truth of the law and the hope of the gospel to bring truth, clarity, and redemption to the moral chaos of their lives. Why are we spending so much time on this topic? It's 1141. 41 of our minutes have gone by. Why are we spending time on this? Well, because our passage instructs us to be content. And this includes the sex which God has made us. And this is always true. But June 4th is a good, as good a time as any to mention it. So, point one, be content with neutral, unchangeable circumstances. Whether you're male or female, it is neutral and it is unchangeable. So be content. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, be content with that. Whether you are from Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic, or the Bronx or Queens, Where you were born is not something you can change. If you come from a family of rednecks in rural Florida, that's your background. You can't change it. Be content with it. But secondly, you are free to seek freedom from bad, changeable circumstances. On the first point, these matters which cannot change, God calls you to complete contentment. On the second, there are circumstances which are not morally neutral and they are possible to change. Then yes, you are free to get out of bad situations such as slavery. God's inspired word is gain your freedom. So if you find yourself at some point in a small group or just in a conversation with friends and you have just found out about the most horrific facts about your situation, You just got some terrible news. But there is a way out. And this situation is troubling you, and you're like, oh, what should I do? 
and someone starts pressuring you saying, no, you just need to be content. I would encourage all of you to be a little bit more slow to speak, a little bit more slow to apply the wrong passage to the wrong situation. It is true that the Bible says in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, godliness with contentment is great gain. It is true that the Bible praises contentment and tells us to be content, but it is also true that if you are a slave and you have the opportunity to gain your freedom, you should take advantage of it. Why? Because you have more freedom as a free man and you can do more good for the kingdom and the purposes of God having that freedom and liberty. But if you are stuck in that and you cannot get out, then yes, remember the rest of these words, which says, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we carry nothing out of it. Having food and clothing with these, we should be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. It is true also that Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This message to be content is what Paul is saying from a Philippian, or not Philippian, from a Roman prison. He is locked up in chains and he's saying, hey guys, you need to be content. He's not writing that to people who have just walked into a restaurant and they're, they're hungry and he's saying, don't order anything, you need to be content. No, but in circumstances which cannot be changed, permanent circumstances that are bad, be content. Now this brings us then into our point two, singleness. Versus... 25 through 31, we'll consider there's some unique circumstances going on here. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose therefore that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed? Do not seek a wife. If even uh, if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. And from uh, now on, even those who have wives should be as though they have none, and those uh, weep should weep should not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the world is passing away. There is some unique circumstance going on in this text, and we do not know what it is. And this is a challenge for interpretation. This present distress described in verse 26 through 28. Some commentators would say, oh, this is the tribulation events prior to the return of Christ. If that's the case, then these are not unique events and they describe and apply to the entire time from Paul's writing until Jesus returns, which by my watch, he hasn't come back yet. So that means this particular situation is not a present distress, but it is an all-of-time distress. The problem is with that interpretation that it contradicts a lot of other passages which instruct us on these issues. So what is this talking about? The challenge with that first interpretation, beyond just that it flatly contradicts a lot of other passages, is that 
That term describing the present distress is not used in the Bible in this way to describe the tribulation. So we think that's the wrong we. I and a lot of commentators don't think that's the right interpretation, but rather refers to persecution or opposition that is uniquely associated with being a Christian in a hostile world. But I think that it's more than just in a general hostile world, but in a particular situation, there's something going on that made sense to them when they read it. They're like, yeah, we're, we're familiar. It could have possibly also been one of their points that they wrote to him about, and he wrote back to them about this present distress. Hey, Paul, what should we do about this present distress? And he's like, well, about the present distress, here's what you should do. And they're like, yeah, we get that. So let's make this practical. I was at a conference this week in Pennsylvania called the Banner of Truth Ministers Conference. It is my favorite conference. Trivia question for birthday parties. Um, we st- the whole event is held on the Elizabethtown College campus in Eton, Pennsylvania, and uh, what that means is we stay in the dorms and eat in the cafeteria, and the sessions are held in the chapel, and it's all on one site. But that also means that every year I get a roommate, and that roommate is traditionally a seminary student from RPTS, Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I don't know why. It just has been a random seminary student from that seminary every year for like the last six years. It's always a new guy and it's always a doctoral student or MDiv student from that seminary. It's a tiny seminary as well. I'm not sure why, it's just the way it's happened. Now, that's all extra. But this year, my roommate was a Chinese guy, born and raised in China, came here on a student visa to do his MDiv, to do his PhD, and to return to China to teach theology to underground house church pastors. So, as he was talking, I was like, oh, this is a good illustration. I asked him, we were talking, sharing stories about our lives and families and all this stuff, and I was like, so, we're, we're the same age. Are you married? you have kids? And he said, no. Not married. Don't want to get married. Oh, why is that? I'm going back to China and it's illegal to be a pastor. It's extra illegal to train pastors for ministry. I don't want to bring a wife through that kind of life. I don't want her to suffer the way that I'm going to suffer. I think that that illustration is a very fitting explanation or illustration of the type of present distress that Paul is writing about. There are certain unique circumstances in certain places and certain times that are so hostile, so dangerous, that for this particular man to get married and then to go into that place is, is, is going to exponentially complicate his life. And so he looks at his situation. He says, well, I could go. It's just me. Nothing hold me back. I'm a Chinese citizen. I speak the language. I can get a scholarship and do my training, and then I can go back home and train house church leaders because, don't tell Francis Chan, but house churches are actually not godlier than established churches. They're breeding grounds for heresy. These pastors have no training whatsoever. 
and cults are formed faster than cockroaches grow in New York City. They need theological training. They need instruction to help minimize the the heresies and the cults. But that's really dangerous because being a theological leader, being a trainer of pastors, makes you a couple levels higher on the CCP's hit list. So this is extra dangerous. And so this young man says, I don't want to pursue a wife because of the circumstances. And I think that something like that may be what is going on in this situation in Corinth. Verse 29, this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. How could that make sense? Well, that could make sense in a situation like what I described. Now let's bring it into the next, uh, the last eight verses, 32 to 40, broad principles. Singleness is much less complicated than married life. Verse 32, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things of this world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a virgin and a wife. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of this world, how she may please her husband. This I say not for your own profit, that I may put a leash on you. I say it for your profit. Um, for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. If any man thinks he's behaving improperly toward his, towards his virgin, she is, we'll pause there because that's a whole nother situation. So singleness is much less complicated than married life. Illustration, getting clearance to go as a missionary to Pakistan is much easier when you only have to provide for or protect or figure out yourself. Caring for your spouse and family changes everything. There's a high number of people who served the Lord with full focus and devotion while single, who then married spouses who had different priorities and attempted to pull them away from their service to the Lord. Paul has a very realistic perspective on these things. He is likely speaking out of his own experience with his own wife who either died or left him. I think likely left him. I do not take verse 32 to be prescriptive, but descriptive. I don't know if 32 is right because my notes just turned white and disappeared. Verse 34, sorry. I do not take his words in verse 34 to be prescriptive, but to be descriptive. What do I mean? Something that is prescriptive says this is how it ought to be. Something that is descriptive says this is how it is. I don't think he's saying this is the right way. I think he's saying this is just the reality. This is the nature of things. What am I talking about? Verse 34 says... Uh, The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This shift, this massive shift that takes place when someone goes from single to being married, where they go from, hey, I'm here to serve the Lord, I'm here to serve the church, I'm whatever you need, versus, oh, I don't think I can do that because I'm married. You need me to vacuum? Kids, you know, they're hungry. There's a view that goes like this, and he references it. While you are single, you serve the Lord. 
Once a woman gets married, now your ministry is to serve your husband. I think that that's wrong. Yes, Paul references it, but I think it's descriptive, not prescriptive. I think he's saying this is how things are. Why do I think it's wrong? Well, first off, it's, it requires a model where the only ones who serve the Lord are either single or paid staff. Sorry, pastor, I can't serve because I'm married. Oh, you want me to come early for church to help with music or setup? I can't do that because I'm married. That's nonsense. That's crazy. That's not the way things work. I mean, it kind of is the way things work, but it's not right. Secondly, the church actually needs the ministry of married people. This church needs the ministry of married people to minister to each other, to serve one another. Thirdly, for the one who adopts this not as a description of how things are, but a prescription of how things ought to be, what they're saying, particularly with the the wife, oh, now that you're a wife, now you don't serve the church anymore, you just serve your husband, and when you show up to church, you just sit in the back pew and just sort of hang out. That would be the equivalent of saying that a husband's ministry, once he gets married, is to work a job to provide for his family. And I say, no, that's not his ministry, that's the bare minimum of responsibility. So in your membership interview, and I say, well, how would you like to serve? And you say, well, I have a job, and I'm going to work my job to provide for my family, and that's my ministry. I say, well, are you referring to, like, giving in an exceptional way? Oh, no, no, I'm just talking about, like, keeping the lights on at my house. And I'd say, that's actually not your ministry. That's your responsibility. There's a difference between these. And so it is for a wife. It's not your ministry to feed your kid Cheerios. That's your responsibility. And your local church actually needs you. Now, yes, that'll look different at different stages in your life. And I'm not saying it needs to look identical for all people. But don't have a check my service at the door mentality because I'm married now. I've sadly seen this plenty of times. What this means is that you need the local church and the local church needs you. I want to be the first to recognize that there will be seasons of life where all you can do is to make it through those doors on time. I acknowledge that. But that's not a permanent, unchangeable situation. That's a, hey, I just gave birth and it's been two weeks and I'm just, it's been six weeks and I'm just struggling. It's been, that's different. But when your kids can walk and talk and dress themselves, your availability changes over the course of your life. But even in those things, even the woman, the woman who gave birth and is a, a mother to small children, she can still actually serve other people, maybe not in physical ways, but with words, with a text of encouragement, with a phone call, with prayer. But there's a difference in the mentality between these two things. There's a difference in attitude Also, it should not be your life where you say, hey, my, the way I'm serving is just existing. As a Christian, your life should have an others-centeredness to it. This is the type of ministry and relationship that we see described in Titus chapter 2. We already covered that in our last series on Titus. Older women, it's not enough just to serve your family. There are also younger women who need you. Now, that's going to require that you actually have to know your stuff. The Bible 
criticizes or condemns these wives' tales and gossip. The default position of the untrained, undiscipled, older woman who, well, actually, I haven't been studying the word of God for 40 years. I just have heard some, some tales, and I'm going to tell those to you and give you these words that are not actually biblical. That's bad news. That's not a good thing. So this requires that you know your stuff. You need to know sound doctrine. You need to have godly wisdom. And the place to start with that is with your local church. Your local church is teaching from the pastors and elders as your first primary source, not some random internet ministry, not some random blog, some random podcast, or even, worst of all, the Instagram pages, hiding behind an anonymous, no-name account that is just putting things out there with no implications or, or consequence. Your church is protected by a doctrinal statement, a membership covenant, a commitment to each other, relationship, an extended period of time of relationship and knowing each other. There's a lot more that goes into it than just some random thing you found on the internet. Also, those random internet ministries are not called by God to answer for how they shepherded you. And that's a massive difference. But the pastors of the local church are told by God that they will answer to God for how they taught and how they instructed and how they shepherded. And so everything that they do and say and teach is done with that in mind. And that is not true of the 21-year-old who starts an Instagram account because she got saved four months ago and now she wants to be a teacher of others who are 18. But you don't know any of that because it's just a random account. And these are not exclusive to women's spaces, though they are dominating women's spaces. They're also true of men's spaces as well. Self-appointed pastors and theologians who have no training and no oversight and no lineage or background. They got saved during COVID and now they want to make themselves teachers and establish their own institutions, but their degrees are in marketing. So what does that mean? That means things look really slick and shiny and polished and nice and appealing, but their theology is changing day after day after day. You remember scrolling on their page and seeing back when they were Protestant and then they were super reformed and then they loved some really reformed people and then they became Catholic and now they're Greek Orthodox and now Protestants are the worst ever. These things happen. They're all over the internet. Now, that's older women, older men. It is not enough to work your job and scoot in and out of the back doors as quickly as possible. You actually should take on a mentality of investing in other people, especially younger men. Men who don't have dads. Men whose dads are far away. This is the biblical ideal. But in our text today, Paul is describing broad principles, which is those who are married often have problems that they did not have when they were single. Part of why I think Paul is describing his own situation is because those who have good marriages don't talk this way. Because what you're looking for, for those who are single, you're looking for an equal yoking. You're looking for a marriage that's not going to actually hold you back, but you will be able to go further together than what you could do on your own. And don't settle for anything less than that. Paul is also careful to remind himself and others that he is not putting a leash on them. He's not binding their conscience. He's just giving some advice as someone who's been there, done that, got the t-shirt. 
Now, this uh, final section, verses 36 to 40, is complicated. If any man thinks he's behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He has not sinned, let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity of it, has power over his own will, and so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Those who, uh, if he gives her in marriage, does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Can you go to the previous slide? Um, Because I'm not done yet. Uh, Verse 39, a wife is bound, uh, we'll get into that in a moment. So, 36 to 38, you have basically three options on what this means, and it's difficult. So, either, who who are the people described here? Who is the man described in verse 36? If any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin. Now, we would often think, oh, well, that's talking about the man, the, the engaged man who has uh, the fiance. That's one of the options. The problem is that engagement did not exist in this culture at this time. It just wasn't a thing. There's also language within that paragraph that makes that um, conclusion difficult. It speaks of this man being the one who gives this virgin to be married. Another option is that this man described in this text is the father of the girl, father of the virgin. Problem with that view, though it is, some scholars think, a lot of scholars think that's the best view. It's probably what is actually being described here. Problem is the, the wording is kind of weird and doesn't exactly fit. It's not a perfect fit by our understanding of things today. The last option is that Paul may perhaps be speaking to these people who are, they've gotten under the teaching, under the influence of the super apostles who are teaching them about spiritual marriage. So you're married, you even live together, but you can't have sex because that's bad. So you're living as brother and sister under the same house, even though you are husband and wife. This would have been one of the super apostles' views of this pseudo-fake spirituality. But even that is, is a difficult view that doesn't necessarily fit, and it's not super clear. But the good news for us all is that it doesn't really matter which of the three scenarios is intended by Paul. The meaning is still clear, and that is that it is not wrong for two single Christian, a man and woman, who have all the other parameters in place, like marriage is not wrong. It is not an intrinsic bad. It is not inherently a a vice to be avoided. So he doesn't want, in all of his praising of singleness, and all of his saying, hey, it's better if you were single, he doesn't want them to think, oh, it would be wrong for me to to marry the woman that I'm about to marry. So don't let anyone tell you that, hey, I know you're engaged right now, I don't know if we have any engaged people in the room right now, but let's say that you're engaged and you read this verse, like, oh no, maybe I shouldn't get married because it's better not to be married and I need to just break this up. No, that's, that's not right. And this paragraph is addressing a situation sort of like that. Now then bring us in uh, to verse 39 and 40, referencing widows. What is happening here? Well, 
If you're a widow, you're free to remarry. Your spouse dies, go ahead and get married. You can. You have that freedom. But Paul goes on to remind us all, to restate it. She would be happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. So he's saying she'd be happier if she stays single. And I also think I have the spirit of God. So this is his opinion. He's saying, I think it would be better. And this is also why I think that this man had a very bad marriage. Because if he had a good marriage, he wouldn't be sitting here saying, you would be happier single. So if you are a widow, and you're here today, I don't think there are, but if you are a widow and you ever hear this message, and you want to remarry, you can. You have that freedom. Just make sure that you marry someone that you would be happier with than not with. And I think I also have the spirit of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you that though it has complicated sections in it and it has elements that are far removed from us in culture, that yet you've still made your word clear enough that we can understand the point. I pray that it would not wrongly or falsely bind anyone's consciences in matters that is not intended by you, but that it would be helpful, that we would seek to be content in whatever circumstances we are, we are in, that we would seek to serve you, that we would also have a realistic understanding of life and that life does get complicated. Lord, I pray that you would save those among us that are not saved, and I pray that you would um, save the lost here in New York City as this is a month where there is much uh, open rebellion against you and your creation, your nature, the design that you have given to the world. I pray that you would save many people that are in the LGBT community, that you would bring them out of darkness into the light. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.